The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them. This is from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are so grateful that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. For we are here in need of your mercy and your comfort. You have sent your own Son, Jesus, to be bruised, cursed, forsaken for us. We ask that you would once again, by your Spirit, show your mercy and give your comfort to your people, so that we, we, we may give this great comfort to a world bruised, cursed, and forsaken you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. So we are at the beginning of a new year, and often this is a time of resolutions, of all the things that you want to do. But what about all the things, all the work that you need to do in the coming days, coming months, 2019? Students, think about all the loads of tests and assignments that you have to complete Employees, you all have small projects and massive projects to be done. Moms, you have hundreds of meals to cook, thousands of pieces of laundry to fold, millions of messes to be cleaned up. Work, work, work that God has planned for you in 2019. As Christians, we should view this work as good because it grows us up. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon is the father teaching his son how to grow up, how to mature, how to be wise. And this requires work. Proverbs 10 begins, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. He who gathers in the summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So if you want to be a wise son, here's what Father Solomon tells you. Get up, get out, get to work. And I love you, my son, but go, get to work. And I'm thankful that my dad taught us kids to work. From early on, we were expected as part of the Knight family to work and to enjoy doing it. So Pops would announce, it's time to clean the house. And then he would go put on the house cleaning music, which would be blaring. And when friends came over, Pops would enlist them in whatever the work was going on, whether it's folding clothes, pulling weeds, washing the car. He did keep up morale with a regular dose of Skittles to all of us. But he would say that this is part of our education. A wise father makes his children work to make them wise, to make them grow up. 
And this is how God, our father, treated his first son, Adam. God gave Adam work, a world full of work to do. And it's good to remember that the paradise that God placed Adam in was not an eternal day at the beach with the toes in the water and a fruity drink in hand. Paradise had chores, tending, keeping, working. And the father said it was good. God continues to be a wise father who wants his children to grow up. This is your sanctification. And so he gives you work in your studies, your job, your kitchen, the snarl in your family, your sin that you have to root out. All part of tending and keeping and harvesting your garden. The question is, will you be a wise son? Will you be a wise daughter? Or lazy? Will you cause shame or give glory? The wise son who gives glory to his father is, of course, Jesus. And when we see Jesus as our standard for work, we see our shameful laziness. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Our Father, we know that you are the wise Father who desires your children to grow. And so you give us work and challenges and difficult things. But instead of diligence, thankfulness, joy in this work, we are lazy, anxious, complaining. We procrastinate, flake on projects, twist your grace into spiritual sloth, and work hard to avoid the work you give. As parents, we, we set a bad example for our children. And we are the children who cause you grief. We confess this as sin, and now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. This is from Isaiah 32:17. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. So we know that we all have been unrighteous in our work. But the good news is that Jesus has been righteous. And it is on the basis of his perfect work for you that we have peace. So it is on Christ's work for you in the gospel that I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. These are the words of God. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality 
that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new year in which to enjoy your uh, generosity toward us. Your mercies are new every morning, and so we ask for them now and tomorrow and for all time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What do you want most in 2019? What is at the top of your prayer list? What would make this year the best year ever? Think about that for a moment and hold that thing in your mind. What is it? Now consider another question. What does God want most for you in 2019? What is at the top of Jesus' prayer list for you? What does God want to do to make this year the best year ever? Think about that for a moment. Were your answers the same? Or were they different? (laughs) Mine were very different. I ran through this intro, uh, my friend Jacob Rush, we went on a little jog and I was pitching this sermon to him. I said, tell tell me if this works with you. (laughs) And he said it was different. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's a little different for you. It's different for me. It's different for him. But uh, whatever your answers were, it it tells you a lot about what is in your heart, right? Uh, Maybe you thought, I want unlimited ice cream in 2019, right? That's a good gift from God. But then you thought, what does God want? Wants wants me to be healthy, body, temple. He must want unlimited broccoli for me in 2019. This is the year the heavens open and God says, my son, it's time to go paleo. Or maybe when I asked those questions, you struggled to answer because you don't really know. You know, you want a lot of things. What does God want for you? I don't know. Pray more, read my Bible more, go to church more. You didn't even know Jesus had a prayer list. And it can be confusing sometimes to know what, what is it that you, you want. But these questions are really helpful because they tell us truly what is inside. And Jesus says, out of the heart comes everything, everything in your life. Maybe you want healing from a chronic ailment. Maybe you want a raise or a promotion to level up at your job. Maybe you just want a job. Maybe you want a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Maybe you want 2019 to be the year you have your first kid. Or maybe you have kids and you just want them to be like quieter. (laughs) 
You want a little peace and quiet this year. Maybe you want the repentance of a wayward family member or friend. You want reconciliation with a parent or relative. Maybe you want to buy a home. Or maybe you want to remodel and improve your current home. You want you know, new cabinets in 2019. Shoot for the stars. Cabinets. Whatever it is, so long as it's lawful, those are all good things. But the if and the when and the how, that is all in God's secret or hidden will. And by definition, we can't see into it. I can't tell you if this is the year you finally get that thing that you so desperately want. But what I can tell you with absolute certainty is God's revealed will for your life from this passage. So uh, this sermon is part two to my sermon on uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I know you guys all memorized that. And if you, if you didn't, then that needs to be on the top of your list for 2019. Because, you know, because it always applies, <laughs> right? That still applies right now. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything, give thanks. That's God's will for you, but I also have more. That's why there's a part two here. So uh, this is part two to to that, Um, and this is really helpful if you are lost or confused and wondering, yeah, what am I doing this year? Where am I going? Where am I leading my family this year? So I'll tell you up front, it's not a sermon where I just tell you everything you want is an idol, because it's not, okay? Those are all, you know, I'm not opposed to ice cream or, or broccoli for that matter, okay? There's a lot of good things that God has put in your heart to want. Uh, I simply want us to uh, get perspective on those things that we want, to prioritize them in God's hierarchy. This is Augustine's, you know, ordering of the love. So let's start with what God has said explicitly, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. And then let him worry about all the other stuff that keeps you up at night, okay? Now, uh, this is a sermon about sex. It's about sex. And my outline is a simple exposition of these eight verses, and I'm going to make some applications along the way. So I believe uh, the passage is in your bulletin if you want to follow along. So uh, let's start by looking at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says this to them. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So who are these Thessalonians that Paul is writing to? Well, the Thessalonians, if you read uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll see they were a faithful and joyful church. You know, I think very much like you. In the chapters leading up to this one, we are told that they, quote, receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. They receive the word of God, and it says in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 13, they welcomed it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So when they heard preaching... They didn't hear Ty or Matt or Aaron. They heard God 
speaking to them. And because they received it as such, the word worked effectively in their lives. This was the Thessalonians, and Paul commends them for this. He says, I praise you in this. Well done. And so I want to start by commending you for the same. I think Christ Church is a people that is very hungry for God's word. You have a carnivorous appetite for the truth, and I praise you for this. It makes my job a real joy. Some examples would include your involvement in parish discipleship groups, your participation in the Bible reading challenge, all the book studies you are doing and meeting with, uh, for coffee with people to disciple them. Man, I love to see that. I love that I can just walk over to Boosters and see a bunch of people meeting and fellowshipping over the word of God. I tell you, that doesn't happen in a lot of places, okay? This is rare. And so I commend you for this. I know that I've said, and I will continue to say, some very hard things to you from Scripture. Not because I like ruffling your feathers, but because you need it, I need it, we need it. And God's glory demands it. He demands the open statement of the truth. And in all this, you have been a very receptive and joyful church. And so I say with Paul, and I say with God, I urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound in this more and more. So well done. Keep going. This is because we like the Thessalonians, are a bunch of ex-idolaters. Paul says in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that the Thessalonians' faith had sounded out in every place. People knew who they were. And why? It says they heard how you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a repentance heard around the world in Macedonia and Achaia. And it made me think, what would that look like here? What would it take for our faith to make headline news? Turning from idols to serve the living and true God. I want that for us. I want that for Moscow. I want that for the university. I want that for the state of Idaho. We want that for our nation, that every knee would bow. And one day that will happen. But until then, our job is to start with us. Why should anyone else bow if we won't? So we must start with the person that we look at in the mirror every morning. That is the main idol that you have to deal with. You know, putting on your mascara if you're a girl. Think, hey, there's the idol right there staring back at me. That's what has to die if our faith is going to be heard throughout the world. Self-worship, self-obsession, Self-pity, self-loathing, self-centeredness, all of it has to die. And Paul says, this is how you ought to walk and please God with a life of ongoing, turning away from the man in the mirror and, and turning to God. And then Paul gives this very clear message to the Thessalonians, these ex-idolaters, these former self-worshippers. He gives them a clear message from God. So uh, you want to know God's will for your life in 2019. Here it is, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. 
If Jesus had a prayer list, this would be at the top of his list for you. Now, uh, if you are new to church or to the Bible, what does this word sanctification mean? Okay. Well, it simply means to be set apart or dedicated for special use. It's the same uh, Greek word we translate as holiness. To be sanctified is to be holy. So think, of it, think about it this way. Think of someone baking gingerbread cookies. Okay, You got the dough, and it's rolled and spread out on the parchment paper. And now it's time to get out the cookie cutter, and you impress that cookie cutter on the dough. And it goes from being this plain, flat sheet of dough to now the shape of a gingerbread man, right? The gingerbread man has been sanctified, okay? He has been set apart from the rest of the dough for baking in the oven and human consumption, okay? Now, that's a a silly illustration, I know, uh, but this is what God does with us in salvation. We're all dough, we're all made in God's image, but we need to be re-stamped. Okay? We need to be recut into the image of Christ, to be cut out from the world and made into citizens of God's kingdom, the new world. So think about sanctification is how you become human 2.0. It is the path to greater enjoyment of God and communion with the one who made you. And Paul says this is what you were made for. You were made to be sanctified. You were made to be holy like God is holy. And that's true in every season of every year, in good times and hard times, you are made to know God and find rest in him. But Paul keeps it real. He knows that there are a lot of obstacles and impediments and things that get in the way of this fellowship. And so he gets specific. And so don't, we like general sermons, right? But Paul, he gets specific. And so It's time for me to also get specific with you. This is the fun part, right? What is entailed in this process? What are the specifics of God's will? Verse 3 goes on. He says, that you should abstain. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from what? From sexual immorality. If you want to rejoice always and be happy in God, Paul says you must abstain from every kind of sexual immorality. And isn't abstinence just a nice, you know, word that everyone likes? But most of us, we we kind of scoff at abstinence, right? That's for those uptight Puritans, right? We are sexually woke, So what does this mean for us? It means no adultery, no pornography, no cohabitation, no sexual deviancy, no voyeurism, no incest, no pedophilia, no bestiality, no robo-sex, no virtual reality sex, no rape, no sexual abuse, no emotional entanglements with unbelievers or people who are not your spouse, No courting, no dating, no entertaining relationships with unbelievers, no fornication, no sex outside of marriage, no putting of your members in places contrary to nature and the law of God or anything else the depraved mind thinks up next. We are living in a time of sexual insanity, right? I see headlines of people trying to marry inanimate objects. This is crazy. I saw someone, they 
They married a tree, married a ghost. Someone even married a hologram. One woman tried to divorce the ghost. Not sure how that works. But it's funny and it's sad. But this is, this is where we're at right now. You cannot become one flesh with a tree. There's no fruitful union between two men or two women. And it's an abomination because it destroys and brings shame to everyone involved. Sexual sin is one of the most dehumanizing things that can happen. And those of you who have been abused know this, right? It feels like a stain on the soul that no shower can remove. And so Paul says, God's will for you is that you flee from this, that you abstain from this. You run away from it, have nothing to do with it. Because as fun and adventurous and thrilling as these things might be, they are the runway to hell. Sexual sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. So we must have nothing to do with it. So if abstinence is the negative, that's the do not side of sanctification, Paul goes on to then give us a positive imperative, the do this side of sanctification in verses 4 and 5. Listen to what he says. He says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the command here is possess your own vessel in holiness and honor. And this means physical and emotional self-control over your passion. So your body's a car, who's driving? Are you sitting in the back just letting your passions drive, looking out the window? Is sin driving or is God driving? Is lust or is the Holy Spirit in you? If you've ever been stuck in sexual sin, you know what it's like to be split in two, to wrestle over who's got the steering wheel. Part of you wants to follow God. Part of you wants the pleasures of sin, and it can feel hopeless. And I know there are tons of people, not just out in the world, but in the church that feel that way, feel torn apart. And I want to say, if that's you, there is real hope and real freedom and lasting change available in Jesus Christ. You may be struggling right now, but you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I know countless men who have felt at one time totally, totally enslaved to sin but by God's grace have slain the dragon and had their manhood restored. And the question to you is, do you really want to be free? How bad do you want to be free? Are you willing to go to extreme lengths to mortify your passions? I ask, do you want to kick the habit in 2019? Because if you're willing to do whatever it takes, I promise freedom awaits you. 
And I can say this with absolute confidence because God does not command us to do things without giving us what we need to do them. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true. Listen, no temptation has overtaken you, such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This means there's always a trap door to get you out. There's always a way out. So men and women, you who are in this fight, will you take up the sword, the sword of the spirit, and will you slay your flesh? Will you mortify that idol in the mirror? Will you present your members as instruments for righteousness instead of going to sleep in your filth? This is God's will for you. Before all the other stuff, let's start here. I know, I know Guy, I did college ministry for a number of years in Seattle, and it was amazing when these guys would come out of uh, and confess their sins. Man, it just unleashed their leadership, their joy in God, their desire to pray and read the word and see other people converted. This was the key that unlocked, really, that unashamedness about the gospel. And we need that in our churches. We need this. So start here. I want you to know that the outside world is watching. Okay? They don't know any better. They don't know God. They don't know how to possess their vessel in holiness and honor. And you must show them. You must show them how to do this. And so part of possessing your vessel in sanctification and honor, as Paul says here in verse 4, means confessing the sex God made you in every area of your life. What do I mean by this? I mean girls should throw like girls. And men should throw like men. Okay, We've reached a point where, uh, our, in our culture where someone, uh, an unbeliever like Jordan Peterson, has to say to a bunch of people, stand up straight with your shoulders back. And everyone's like, right? goes on to be a bestseller. So, yeah, that's a good thing to do. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. And, you know, ladies can do this too. Just, it's just good posture, right? This is so hard because men should look and talk and act like men. That's pleasing to God. And women should look and talk and act like women because there is no androgyny with God. Jesus says, from the beginning, he made them male and female, and there's nothing in between. He made us different, men and women different, to show something of his manifold wisdom and glory. And so how dare we deprive God of the glory he deserves by rebelling against the sex that he made us? I am tired of hearing people, myself included, obsess over what we want. What about what God wants? Shouldn't that matter more? Isn't God the thing that is way more valuable than you? 
What if that was the question that shaped our life? What if our Christian life was God-centered and not man-centered? What if you confessed the sex God made you and learned to love it instead of rebelling against it? God wants you to own the sex he made you. Act like a man. Act like a woman. Glorify God in your body because you will be male or you will be female forever. Right? Heaven is not a genderless existence. So let's start practicing now. So the positive command for sanctification is that you know how to possess your vessel with honor. You are a vessel. You are a body. You need to possess that because you were made for glory. You were made for glory. And there are two other things that Paul tells the Thessalonians to do if they are to be sanctified. In verse 6, he gives us the purpose of possessing our vessel with honor. He says, it is so that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So what is in view here is the avoidance of adultery in the church. If you sleep with another man's wife, you are defrauding your brother. And Paul warns, God is an avenger, and he will have vengeance on you. So adultery is nothing to play with. And this is important, especially in the church, where we are a close community of men and women, and we are all called to love one another. But this love is to be with all purity. right? The world has no category for this kind of love. So now a word about holy kisses. Four times, four times in scripture, Paul commands the churches to greet one another with a holy kiss. First Corinthians, second Corinthians, first Thessalonians, that's our book, and Romans. And I am of the somewhat unpopular opinion that this is not a mere cultural custom but an objective and for all times Christian custom that the church needs to recover, okay? Different sermon. Now, because I love you, I am not going to kiss any of you today. <laughs> but I say this because just let's run the mental thought experiment. Let's say I do say, guys, we need to start holy kissing, okay? Where would this take us? Let's, let's just run this scenario out. Think about the kind of purity of heart that you would need to kiss one another. Paul says, uh, right after the rejoice always pray without ceasing part, he says, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. So uh, Paul is uh, probably talking about same-sex kissing here. Men kissing men, women kissing women, no homo. But in, other, uh, in the other books, it just says one another. So it's uh, sexually ambiguous, if I could say. Either way, either way, just think about that. We have been so pornified and desensitized that we can't even conceive of kissing one another without bringing sex into it. But I tell you, I kiss my mom, I kiss my dad, and my dad kisses me, and I kiss my two sisters, and they kiss me, and it is with total purity of heart. And if we are the family of God, we should be able to love each other this way. 
This is what Paul commands the Thessalonians, the Corinthians twice, and the Romans to do. And you'll remember the Corinthians had incest in their church, right? But nonetheless, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, a holy kiss. Is that really hard? So perhaps right now we are just too immature to do this, right? We have the you have cooties thing. But if we are to reach that kind of maturity and purity and holiness, we must learn to treat one another's spouse with absolute purity of heart. And so the golden rule is helpful here. Look at your brother's wife like you would want your brother to look at your wife. Treat your sister's husband the way you want your sisters to treat your husband. Because our God is a very jealous God. And he will bring vengeance upon those who transgress this law. And then Paul adds this final warning to drive home the seriousness of this sin. He says in verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So if you reject God's uh, command towards sexual purity, you are rejecting God's will for your life, plain and simple. And you really shouldn't expect him to bless anything else that you want. Right? If you are uh, disobedient to the main big thing, you know, why would he bless all the other things? So this is not just Paul or me or any man's mere opinion. It is God's absolute and authoritative will. If you reject this sermon, you are rejecting God, and God is an avenger. I'll close with this. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your daydreams? Is Jesus Lord over your body? Is Jesus Lord over every goal, resolution, and desire of your heart in 2019? If not, now is the time to make that so. Some of you need a total overhaul of your life and schedule if you are going to conquer sexual sin in 2019. Some of you need a long detox from what feels like an endless struggle against pornography and masturbation. Some of you need to be smart enough to get rid of your smartphone, to get a dumb phone, to delete Snapchat, delete Instagram. Some of you need to cancel Netflix or Amazon or whatever it is. Turn off the internet for a month. Just see what happens. And some of you are still living under the shame of sins done to you or done by you. And you wonder if that feeling of uncleanness will ever go away. It is that stain, right, that feels unremovable. And if that's you, the good news is that this is exactly why Jesus came. This is the only reason why we gather here today. I said earlier that you have not yet resisted temptation to the point of shedding your blood. That is Hebrews 12.4. Most of us give into temptation at the slightest discomfort. But there is one man who resisted temptation unto death, who never gave in to sin. He was perfectly pure, and holy his entire life. He knew how to possess his vessel. He knew how to confess the sex God made him. And he poured out his blood in order to wash you clean. 
in order to forgive your sins. And by his resurrection from the dead and faith in him, God can declare you righteous in this man, Jesus Christ. So this means if you are a Christian, how does God see you? Well, he looks at you like a father who pities his children. He sees your sin. He sees the struggles. He sees the thoughts that flash into your mind. But he regards you as pure and unstained and holy in Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel like a dirty, used-up vessel. Well, God sees you as this pure and holy vessel. And that is what he is calling you to. For those he justified, he also glorified. And sanctification is the path to glorification. And you were made for glory. This is God's will for you in 2019. And that is better than anything else your heart could dare dream up or imagine. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, the world is enslaved to the passions of lust because they know not God. And so I ask that you would give us the knowledge of you that sets the captives free. Make us to want to know you more than we want anything else. For you say, this is eternal life, to know you, O God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I ask that you would sever this gnarly root of sexual sin in our church, in our hearts, and make us pure and free for you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and amen. In Revelation 7, when John sees the great multitude that no one can number, they are all wearing white robes. It says in 714, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you think about it, this is a great mystery, the great mystery and glory of the gospel, that red blood makes robes white because it is the blood of the lamb who was slain. This bread and wine before us is a reminder and seal of this good news. What can wash away your sins? What can wash away your shame? What can wash away your sexual sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus so come home, wash your robes, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for colors and images of salvation that help us understand the work of your Son. Grant that we might partake of him now in faith, and we ask all this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. The charge is this. Proverbs twenty four sixteen says, Though a righteous man fall seven times, he riseth up again, but the wicked fall into mischief. So notice, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that one falls and the other doesn't. Both of them fall. The difference is that the righteous gets up every single time. And you are righteous in Jesus Christ. So get up and let's get to work together. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.